Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, stalagmites and stalactites. Your teacher is Professor Andy Baker, cave and cast expert at the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences. Andy, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on your program. Yeah, now we're going to get to some exciting new science in a second, but let's start at the beginning with caves. Why do we get caves in the first place? Yes, that's a really good question. We we tend to find caves in a rock type that's called limestone. And the reason why we do is that it can be dissolved in water, uh, slightly acidic water. So if you have some some rain falling on the surface, it can pick up some um, acidity from the carbon dioxide in the soil. So you have this acid water that's naturally available and then it reaches the limestone and starts to dissolve it away. And eventually, after tens or hundreds of thousands of years, you'll get caves that you can walk in through, like uh, Wombian or Janolan. Mm. Interestingly, the warmer and wetter the climate, the faster this process occurs. Yes, that's right. The more carbon dioxide you have in the soil, the, the faster this dissolution of limestone will be, and you tend to get more carbon dioxide in the soil from uh, a more vibrant soil ecosystem. So the warmer it is, the more microbes there are, um, so there's more carbon dioxide being produced, just breathing away, just like you and I, and that produces more carbon dioxide, more acid and bigger caves. Yeah, therefore the big caves of, of say, Southeast Asia, which have been in the news a little bit. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, there's, uh, there's the uh, Thai caves from a few years ago, and uh, you can look up online, you can find there's caves which you could uh, park 747 jumbos in several mm. times over. Okay, once we walk into these caves, of course, we'll find these two things, the stalagmites and the stalactites. We've been talking about memnomics, memnonics today and how we all remember them in various ways, but I, I think the most common one is, the, is uh, when the ants run up, because ants are sorts of mites, when the ants run up your legs, uh, they go up, and then the tights come down, of course. Uh, and tights stick tight to the ceiling, and uh, mites might, might reach the roof. <laughs> Many ways to remember it. This is just a way of differentiating between the ones that come down from the ceiling and then the, the dripping process that creates the ones that grow up from the ground. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the water that uh, dissolves the limestone is working its way down towards the groundwater, and if it comes into a cave, it's going to start dripping in through the cave roof, and that's where it forms the stalactites. It's a bit like um, a drinking straw. So it's a straw that grows longer and longer, further and further from the roof as it um, grows over time. And then that water will drop out the end of the stalactite onto the floor, and it might splash a bit, and it will form a stalagmite, and the mite then will form up towards the roof, and occasionally they meet together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they, they form a column. What, what are they made out of? So they're made of, um, well, they're normally made of a material called calcite. That's the most uh, common type of material. It's another name for limestone or calcium carbonate. It's just a, a particular crystal form, and they form from this very nice uh, calcite crystal structure. But in, in that calcite, there's also all sorts of different impurities and trace metals and bits of organic material because it's all come washed in from the surface and from the soil. Mm-hmm. Now, you work on stalagmites, but not on stalactites. How come? Yeah, that's right. I mean, often when I talk to people, I forget to actually mention this at all. Um, So stalagmites grow up through time, a bit like a layer cake. I'm not very good at my layer cakes, but you imagine uh, sort of stacks of Victoria sponges or something going up higher and higher. So when you slice them, so if you imagine cutting a stalagmite open from top to bottom, you get this really perfect layer cake structure, and you can use that to count back the years. So we use those because we can count back through time. And the, the stalactite, which is coming down, of course, because tights come down, that, that is, is like a straw, so it doesn't have that historical record within it? Well, they do, yeah. So they do, and they actually grow quite fast. It would be wonderful to use them. And 
it's just very difficult because after they get a certain length, they often just fall off, so you lose the record. Or if you get any sort of sediment or particles coming in the water, they often block the whole of a straw, like having a blocked drinking straw, and then the water goes somewhere else or it breaks it again. So they are useful, but they may only grow for a few hundred years. If you have a stalagmite with the right conditions, they could grow continuously for tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. So we get this big, long record of past climate and environment. Okay, environment including fires. This is where your research comes in. You've proved it is really possible to use the, the stalagmites to determine very closely things like flood events and fire events. Yes, our current funding has been to look at fires and in particular to get some very precise records of past uh, wildfires. And this is a collaboration with colleagues at Anstow, just down the road, and uh, it's been led by one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Lisa Madonna. And what we've all discovered is that we can find a record of fires in stalagmites because of the ash that's left behind. So when the forest or the trees burn down, you, you get all the vegetation remains in the form of ash. And of course, the trees and the plants take up all their nutrients and minerals from the soil. So when you have this ash deposit on the surface after a fire, some of that gets washed down into the subsurface, into the caves, and gets trapped within these layer cakes of the stalagmites. So we can see exactly when a fire occurred in the past by seeing sort of the remains of the dead uh, plant material and the ash that was formerly on the surface. Okay, and one particular piece of research you've done is the, uh, I think it's the Yonderup Cave in, in Western Australia. Tell, tell us about that cave and, and what you discovered. Yeah, so we decided to go and work in Western Australia, and the reason for that is the climate is so strongly seasonal. So the summers are very hot and very dry, and the winters are cooler and very wet. So we get this perfect layer caking. We get it, we can count back the years with really great precision. And we had a stalagmite there from this shallow cave uh, called Yondrup Cave uh, in Yanshep, which is about uh, 50 kilometres north of Perth. And we went back through time to try and understand how frequent the fires were in the past. And we can see this evidence of fires occurring from about 300 years ago through to present. Uh, unfortunately, our sample was only about 300 years old in this case. And we can see a change in the type of fire over time. And in particular, there was a big standout wildfire, which gave the biggest sort of chemical signature in the stalagmite, which occurred around about 1897. So we're going back 120 mm -hmm. years or more. And that's right. And the, the, the intensity, I suppose, is not that surprising because that's part of the, the centenary drought, isn't it? It's, it's right at the end of that drought. And at the same time, there was, um, uh, well, before then, there was European arrival. So we also suspect there was a, a change in land management and uh, indigenous fire practices would have stopped maybe several decades earlier. So uh, our, our suspicion is there was a, a build-up of fuel as well as the, uh, the drought at the time. And that led to this catastrophic fire. Yeah, I should say the Federation drought, not the centenary drought, but yeah, around the, the turn of the turn of the century. So this it's increasingly sounding like like trees and tree rings that you can read it that way. Yeah, you're spot on. That's absolutely right. Um, and researchers can use uh, trees to get records of past fires. So you can imagine there'd be fire scars on trees from the recent fires that we've. So the experience the last couple of years. Um, but the main problem is they don't tend to live for that long and they don't tend to get preserved so well in the record. So it's very hard to get long and continuous records of fires from past trees, whereas trees have some of these characteristics of, of tree ring records. We can count back through the years very precisely. Uh, and now we're looking at this new fire record for the first time. Yeah, now your, your example from Western Australia, I, I think, allows you to peer back something like 260 years, which is uh, amazing. But the, the technology is really, uh, you could look back centuries, couldn't you? 
we're going back in time. Yeah, this, so this is the first ever study, uh, and we're currently funded to go back further in time. Uh, we'd like to go back a thousand years, and that will allow us then also to relate fire frequency and fire intensity to climate variability over the last thousand years and put the current fire regimes into some sort of longer context. Uh, for context, we don't have uh, very good records for fire before the instrumental period. So we might have uh, national parks officers making returns, we might have satellite records going back 40 years, and then we're down to oral history and, in, in, and uh, indigenous histories, but they're not that precise. So it's really quite a fuzzy um, knowledge that we have of past fires once you get back beyond uh, sort of the 1950s, 1960s. Yeah, I mean, they're a great record. Uh, I suppose the other thing we should say before we finish is they're incredibly beautiful, aren't they? You know, a, a little bit of light behind them, and they just, uh, they're just exquisite, particularly those effects such as the shawls, for instance. Yes, it's amazing. If you go to one of the local caves at any point and you can see them backlit, you'll, you'll see some of these changes of climate and, and environment in the shores. Cause they often, they often have this sort of bacon structure. They often have names that like Fletcher Bacon. And you can see alternations of uh, a darker brown color and a, and a lighter whiter color. And the brown color will be the organic materials, the soil material mm-hmm. coming in from wetter periods and the lighter periods will be dry periods. And so you'll be looking into a history of the past. Um, yeah. Yes, it's a That's rock right. serving as a history book, isn't it? Uh, how it exciting. Is. Hey, uh, Professor, thank you so much. Thank you much for your time. There's uh, Professor Andy Baker. With another Self-Improvement Wednesday, you can, of course, listen back to his lesson on stalagmites, stalactites, and their use in, uh, in discovering the historical record, particularly of fire and flood, online, abc.net.au is the number. You can listen again online, abc.net.au slash Sydney, and there you'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, Vanessa Prota will be here. Her story, That White Whale.